text is Philippians 3, 12 to 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word, or you can do it before I ask, which is even better. That's the anticipation of the reading of God's word. Great. Um, in your pew Bibles, that's 1163. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is God's word. Amen. Well, go ahead and find your Bibles again, and, or you can use the, the one in the rack right in front of you, and make your way to Philippians 3, 12 through 16. If you're using the Bible, uh, the Pew Bible there, it's on page 1163 again. I want to start this morning by telling you uh, the story of two famous races from the early to mid-20th century. The first one took place on August 7th, 1954, at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. The only two sub-four-minute mile runners in the world at that time were competing against one another. Uh, so the race was dubbed the Miracle Mile, the, uh, the race of the century and the dream race. It was heard over the radio by 100 million people and seen on television by millions more. And as these two runners entered the final lap of the race, the Englishman Roger Bannister had closed the gap on the Australian Tom Landy, and they were now you know, almost neck and neck. And so as they're nearing the finish line, Landy made, who was in the lead, makes the fatal and now famous mistake of checking to see where Bannister was. And as he looks over his left shoulder, Bannister bursts past him on the right to win the race by five yards. Now, turn the clock back about 30 years to another race triangular meet between Scotland, England, and Ireland in July of 1923, a 440-meter dash. As the men round the first corner, different men, as the men round the first corner of that race, they're shoulder to shoulder, one man is shoved to the ground clean off the track. In a shot, he's back on his feet, now 20 meters behind everyone else. And with his head back and his knees high, flying down the track, he runs so hard that as he crosses the finish line, he collapses, having taken first place. So think about those two races. What's the difference? What's the difference? One man took his eye off the prize and looked back and lost the race. The other man 
though cast down, never took his eye off the prize. He never looked back, straining with everything that he had, not only to finish the race, but to win it. That man was Eric Little, of the flying Scotsman who was immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. Now that scenario sounds an awful lot like what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. For Paul, the prize was nothing less than knowing Jesus. His greatest aspiration, as we saw last week in 3.10-11, through 11, was to know Christ by walking in the power of his resurrection and by following the pattern of his cross. He said in 3.8, he was willing to lose everything compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Jesus was his prize. That's who he ran hard after. So what does it take to finish the course and take hold of that prize? That kind of vibrant, life-giving, singularly devoted knowledge of Jesus. What does that take? Well, according to verses 12 through 16, it takes the humility to know that the race is not yet over, that you have not yet arrived, and that there's no time to look back until you've crossed the finish line. And it takes the passion and perseverance to strain toward what's ahead with singular focus, bouncing back up when you've been shoved down because you know the prize is worth it. And so Paul calls us to a gospel-shaped humility and a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance to know Jesus. So let's pray together as we look at this passage and ask God to meet us this morning. Lord, this is your word. As we look into it, we want to see you. We want to hear your voice. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would be at work in our hearts to make yourself known to everyone here. Give us eyes to see you, God. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts ready to be changed by the transforming power of your gospel, and give us a passion to know Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it take to know Jesus in this way, in this life-giving, vibrant way where we are depending on the power of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead every day, and that we are following Christ in such a way that our lives are a depiction and a display of the cross-centered love of Christ. What does that take? Again, Paul calls us to a gospel-shaped humility and a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance. We're going to look first at Paul's humility in verse 12. So, he's just finished this a great declaration of his desire to know Jesus and share in his death and resurrection and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 11. Now he says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. 
And in case you missed it, he says it again in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have, myself yet to have taken hold of it. So, Paul has motivation. He has passion and vigor. But he also has the humility to know that he has not yet arrived. And he wants to make sure nobody mistakes him for claiming that. Uh, and so he, he says it a couple of times that he has not yet arrived in this kind of relationship with Jesus. He still has a long ways to go. And the reality is, until the Lord returns and removes sin uh, from this world once and for all, or until we go to be in his presence in heaven, you and I will both continue to sin. We'll continue to let people down and hurt one another and, and, and say and do things that we know we shouldn't have done, but we did anyway. We're, we will continue to be in need of God's grace and forgiveness. But in the meantime, as we're growing in our relationship with Jesus, as, we are, you know, as our love for him deepens, as we learn more and more about what it does look like to depend on his spirit for life instead of our, our sinful flesh, and as we see God bless us and we see fruit in our lives and in our relationships, the fruit of his gospel, it's really easy to begin taking that progress from God and, and somehow beginning to think that we we've kind of have arrived, at least in, in this area or that. You know, we look back on others running, and we realize we're, we're kind of out in front a little bit. Feels kind of good. You know, we, uh, maybe we're so far, we feel like we can kind of slow down and relax just a little bit. Uh, you know, kind of like the, the hare and the tortoise uh, race. If that's our mindset, we are dreadfully deceived. We are dreadfully deceived. Something is wrong. Because first, it means that we've messed up the race analogy, if that's our mindset, that we are so far ahead or we've somehow arrived. The prize of the race is not beating somebody else. That's to mess up this analogy that Paul's using here. Christianity is not a competition against one another to see how much holier we can be than the next person. Uh, as if to impress God or each other. Now, sadly, it gets played that way a lot. But that is to completely miss the point of grace. That we are not accepted by God because of who we are or what we do, but because by faith we have been united with Christ. He is our identity. It's what He did, who He is. It's by His life, death, and resurrection that we're accepted by God, not by our own hard work or our own privileged heritage. Those are the very things, just a few verses earlier, that Paul disavowed in his walk with God. All the things that he could claim for himself as having some sort of right standing. That was rubbish, according to Paul. That's not how we're made right with God. And so to turn that race analogy into thinking we're in competition with one another is to miss the point completely. Rather, we run to delight in the favor that God has already given us in Christ. We run for the joy of knowing him fully and being changed for the sake of his glory 
so that we can be used by him to spread that glory and knowledge to the world. That's why we run, not to beat one another, but to make much of Christ and to delight in him. The prize is not defeating one another, it's taking hold of Jesus. It's taking hold of Jesus, which means that, second, if we allow ourselves to think that we've somehow arrived, well, that shows that we've clearly taken our eyes off of the prize. We're looking at the wrong thing now. We're no longer focused on Jesus, and so our our perspective is completely messed up and out of whack. We begin to think so highly of ourselves and so little of our sin that in our minds we, we really do have nothing really to learn or to gain in our walk. And again, this would be to to deceive ourselves. We need a gospel-shaped humility to war against that foolish pride that's in our hearts and tells us that we've already arrived and, and maybe those poor people behind us will someday catch up. And when we say gospel, you know, a gospel-shaped humility, a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of what God has done to rescue us from our sin, from our rebellion against the Lord through the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. Jesus lived for us, Jesus died for us, and Jesus rose again to bring us back to God through faith. So, a gospel-shaped humility, a humility that comes from that good news, first, takes a good look at sin. Now, that's something we don't necessarily like to do very often. But if the gospel's shaping us, we take a good look at our sin, which means taking off the mask that we wear to manage other people's perceptions and to hide our shame and our guilt and and our fear. It means taking a good look in the mirror and letting it expose every selfish, lustful, violent, greedy, ungodly thought. Letting it replay for us every lie spoken, every burst of anger and frustration, every broken promise, everything we do to take advantage of someone or to to feed some ungodly pleasure that we know is against God's word. Believing the gospel means that we treat sin for what it is, utterly sinful and deserving of God's condemnation. And the gospel shows us how our sin looks by comparing our lives to the prize, to Jesus. You want to know how well you've arrived, take a look at Christ. That's what perfection, that's what completion looks like. And when you look at Jesus, you know in your soul you have a long ways to go. That's the first part of a gospel-shaped humility. But the second is just as important. And that's taking an even better look at the cross. So we got to look at our sin, or grace won't make any sense. But now we have to look at the cross, and we see all of that sin that we just 
looked at and it just turned our stomach to go back over those memories and, and, and just even this morning and the things that I did. And you take all of that sin and you see it poured out on Christ, taken up by him, so that as he hangs on that cross, he bears the full weight of God's anger against your sin in your place to forgive you, to cleanse you. He takes it off of you and you are cleansed. You're free. You're forgiven. There is no wrath left for the believer in Jesus. God has ascribed Christ's righteous life to us. So yes, we're sinful, but we are forgiven. There is hope and new life in Jesus. So believing the gospel means, yes, that sin is utterly sinful. It also means that grace is completely sufficient. It's completely sufficient. So a gospel-shaped humility reminds us of the obvious, that we still have a long ways to go in our race to know Jesus, but that he is with us, he is for us, that the race has already been won on our behalf, and that the prize of delighting in it is worth it. It's worth it. And that's what we have to do. We have to press on to take hold of that prize. Humility is not, you know, recognizing that we haven't arrived doesn't mean that we just sit on our duff, resigned never to arrive. You know, yeah, I'm not there yet, so I'm just not going to try. You know, that's not what humility is. That's not humility. You know, pastor and author Dave Harvey writes, Humility, rightly understood, shouldn't be a fabric softener on our aspirations. True humility doesn't kill our dreams. It provides guardrails for them, ensuring that they remain on God's road and move in the direction of his glory. So God has given us ambition and passion for a purpose. So Paul goes on to to model for us Not just the humility we've seen, but also the passion and the perseverance necessary to keep running. Even when it's difficult, even when the course takes an unexpected turn, to keep running. So we need a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance. Perseverance means to work hard at something, even when it's difficult, or even when you face opposition. You keep fighting. And perseverance is the fruit of our passion, of our ambition. And our passion is shaped by what we value. So perseverance is the fruit of passion. Passion is shaped by what we value. Think about shopping on Black Friday, that wretched American tradition of you know, getting up at you know, whatever hour the day after Thanksgiving. Where does the drive come from that moves people to do crazy things like getting up at 2 a.m. to go stand in a line in order to buy a TV or a sweater? that's That's a hard thing to do. What drives you? That takes a lot of passion to go do that hard thing, especially if you're not a morning person. So where does the that passion and ambition come from? Well, the question... How much do you value owning that TV? How badly do you want it? Your value 
will shape your passion, and your passion is what gets you out of bed to go stand in that line and persevere. You know, the same thing happens with athletic teams that drive to train in season and off season. Their value for the prize fuels their passion to compete. If you don't value it, you will not be passionate about it. And if you're not passionate about it, you won't fight to get it. Okay? So passion fuels our perseverance, and passion is shaped by our value. So similarly, knowing Christ in the way Paul's talking about here, this vibrant, life-giving, ongoing, deepening relationship of sharing in his resurrection and in his death, that requires value, passion, and perseverance. A passion for the prize. Paul speaks of one thing in verse 14. One thing, pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. And again, that prize is what he's already described in verses 10 to 11. Knowing Christ by sharing in his death and resurrection. If Jesus is our prize, then knowing him will be our passion. If Jesus is our prize, our treasure, knowing him will be our passion. And that passion will bear fruit in perseverance. Paul says twice in this passage, he presses on. So verse 12, I press on. Verse 13, I press on. Same word. Because we live in a fallen world, our pursuit to know Christ is not always easy. We have to press on. And we're often tempted to think so lowly of the prize or so little of God's grace and spirit that we can become disenchanted with the pursuit altogether. So what can we practically do to cultivate this passion, this perseverance in pursuing Christ? to avoid getting distracted and derailed. Well, just as we need the gospel to give us humility, so we need the gospel to fuel and direct our passion and our perseverance. And Paul shows us three ways that it does that in in these verses. First, he wants us, he wants you, to let the purpose of your salvation motivate you. Let the purpose for which you were saved motivate you to press on. If you apply for a job and you're selected from among 500 other candidates, or if you try out for the swim team or the hockey team and among 100 students you make the team, you don't walk in on the first day and kick your feet up and just kind of take a nap. That's not what you do. Why not? That's not what you were selected for. That's not why they chose you. You get to work when you get there because you have a job. You've been selected for a purpose. You're part of a team, and that team has a goal. And so you live in accordance with that goal. So it is in Christ. We've been saved for a purpose. Jesus had something in mind when he rescued us. Paul says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Listen to that again. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We've been taken hold of by Christ. 
The only way we're able to pursue Jesus is that he has first taken hold of us. And he did so for a purpose. Again, Paul speaks of the prize for which God has called me heavenward. We have a purpose. We have a calling as the people of God. We've been saved for a reason. And it's not just what we get out of it. Forgiveness, eternal life with God, the beauty of heaven, that is amazing and wonderful. But knowing Jesus is, more, is about much more than just where we end up someday. It's not about less than that, but it is about more than that. This knowledge of Christ that shares in his death and his resurrection, this pursuit to know him and be used by him. We are called in 127 to be partners in and for the gospel. We've been saved for a purpose. So we don't put our lives on cruise control. Let the purpose of your salvation motivate you to push toward that for which you've been saved. To push you toward the goal, the prize, to know and serve Jesus. This is Paul's concluding exhortation in our passage in verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. We've been given the gift of salvation. God has been faithful to grow us in different ways. Let that motivate us to keep fighting and to live in step with what God has already done in our lives. To live up to what we've already attained, what God's already given us and done for us. So let the purpose of your salvation motivate you. Second, let the prize of God's heavenly call focus you. Let the prize of God's heavenly call focus you. Just like we need encouragement or motivation to persevere, we also need focus. Listen again to Paul's focus in verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. There's a singular focus in that pursuit. In other words, Paul is saying, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. Think of Roger Bannister. Think of Eric Little. Keeping the eye on the prize, not looking back. We focus on Jesus. We strain toward what's ahead. Now, in this fallen world, it is very easy to be distracted and take our eyes off the prize. Uh, there are a hundred million things that tempt us every day to do that. Lesser prizes that, that seem more attractive and, and maybe more readily accessible at the time. Sometimes it's because we're just tired and weary of fighting. And we feel like God isn't doing anything to help. I'm trying to walk with God, but I feel like I, every step I take, there's two steps backwards. And, and I'm just no longer even convinced that it's possible. And so it's hard to even want to try. And some, sometimes that's where we're at. And so we give ourselves to lesser prizes. Treasures that are more easily attainable, where the racetrack is shorter and it takes a lot less effort to get there. Treasures like entertainment, food, sports, sex, relationships, school, work, family, fill in the blank. Anything that helps you forget about your sin and your shame, that medicates the guilt and the fear so that we can feel good about ourselves and pretend like everything's okay. We want that easy prize. 
Now, none of those things are bad, intrinsically bad. Those are all good things. They're all gifts from God when rightly used. But that's the point. They're gifts. They're not God. And the mistake comes when we turn them into the prize and exchange the creator for his creation and turn the gift into a God. That's when we find that these gifts do not give the life we're looking for. They don't make good on their promises. They cannot carry you on to what you're looking for in life. There is only one prize worth fighting for, and that's Jesus. One treasure that will satisfy and give us the significance and the joy that lasts forever. We have to keep our focus on him, straining toward what's ahead, depending on God's grace and his spirit every day. And we sang a few minutes ago, so spirit come, put strength in every stride. So we run not out of our own flesh, not out of our own effort. We are too weak for that. We ask God's spirit to come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. And Paul tells us that straining towards what's ahead also means forgetting what's behind. And for a lot of us, I think that's probably the hardest part, forgetting what's behind, forgetting our mistakes, the shame of our failure, turning away from our sin, repenting, even forgetting our good things, the things that tempt us to take pride in ourselves as though we've arrived or done something to earn this kind of favor. Those are the things Paul even puts behind himself in this, this chapter. All our focus is Jesus. The gospel of Jesus frees us to forget what's behind because we're not defined by our performance or our heritage for good or for ill. So you're not defined by that abortion in your past. You're not defined by that failed or fracturing marriage. You're not defined by your lust for pornography. You're not defined by your perfect family that you love to show off. You're not defined by anything like that. You are defined by your relationship with Christ, your identity in Him. Jesus is all your hope, your identity, and He is to be all your focus, forgetting what is behind and following joyfully after him. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here's the goal. Here's the point. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our identity. Jesus is our prize. He's our prize. And the people of God around us and before us are our encouragement. And that's Paul's last point, this great cloud of witnesses. His last point, let the perspective of the mature guide you. So let the purpose of your salvation motivate you. Let the prize of God's heavenly call focus you. Let the perspective of the mature guide you. Listen to verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So the perspective that Paul describes here, this, the necessary qualities of a gospel-shaped humility and a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance are so obvious that he exhorts everyone to share them and assumes that if you think differently, God will sort you out. It's that clear that this is necessary for running and walking with God. All who are mature in Christ, all who have walked with him for some time and have seen personal growth in character and holiness, including a growing awareness of their own sin, all of them should readily agree with what he's saying here, what he's calling us to. So we should let the perspective of the mature guide us in our own effort to persevere in knowing Christ. When you are disheartened, when you're discouraged, when you're confused or afraid in trying to sort out this thing called walking with Jesus, do you have someone to go to to get perspective, to get help, to get encouragement? Do you have other wiser people who've been just a little bit farther down the track than you that can turn around and help you? If you have been walking with Jesus for a long time and you've seen the growth and fruit of his spirit in your life, are you keeping your eyes open for others who need your help, who need your wisdom and encouragement? Paul talks a lot about models and mentors in the book of Philippians. He offers his own example. Uh, he offers the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, the ultimate example of Christ. Next week, he's going to tell us very directly to surround ourselves with people worthy of following as examples. We need to remember that we are not the first ones to run this race we're not the first ones to face the different challenges, and we're not in it alone. We need the encouragement and the perspective of one another and of those who've gone before us to run the race with perseverance. We need a gospel-shaped humility that reminds us the race is not over and a gospel-fueled passion and perseverance that where our salvation, our purpose of our salvation motivates us the prize of our calling focuses us and the perspective of the mature guides us, lest we stop running. As many of you know, the, uh, the race in 1923 when Eric Little you know, came back against all odds after being shoved off the track and, and, and winning, that wasn't his last race. He went on to win the gold medal at the 1924 Olympics, but not in his best race, though. His best race was the 100, 
but months before the Olympics, he received the schedule that they were running his heat on Sunday. And he chose to devote Sunday to the Lord. And so he opted out of his best race at the Olympics and instead trained for the 400. And to everyone's surprise, won it. After you know, the Olympics and, and as he continued in the years that followed, his passion and his focus would lead him not to the fame of the sports world in Great Britain, but instead to the mission field of China, where he grew up as a missionary kid. He served faithfully in China for 20 years. When China felt the heat of Japan in, and the looming occupation during World War II, he sent his wife and his daughters uh, to Canada uh, for, with her parents for safety, while he remained behind in China to help his brother with the poor, with the needy, with children. He spent his final two years in a Japanese internment camp. At one point, when the British government had negotiated for his release, he gave up his spot for a pregnant woman. He died in 1945 from an inoperable tumor about five months before the liberation. According to a fellow missionary, Eric Little's last words were, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. Referring to his decision to give his whole life to God. He never lost his focus. He never looked back. He never stopped running in his pursuit to know Christ, to make him known. God, grant us the humility to know that we haven't arrived. The passion and perseverance necessary to never stop running, but to give everything to you in complete surrender. God, we ask this in your name. Amen. It's complete surrender. That is what God calls us to in this race. 